0: For those who are planning on singing in the choir tonight, I was told to let you know that we'll not you will not be singing in the gazebo, um, but you'll be singing outdoors, so you need to bring a flashlight as well as your voice, so please plan on doing that. Will you bow to me in prayer? Father God, we come to you in this portion of the service and recognize again, Lord, that we are often not hungry enough for the word. We suffer, Father, from a spiritual malady where we're, we don't have the appetite that we need to have for the word of God. And Lord, I know that's true in my own life, and I know it's true for my brothers and sisters. And Father, that's, that's our issue that we need your grace to overcome and so, Father, I pray that we would have a due appreciation for how important your word is in the life of every believer in the life of this covenant body. And that, Lord, you would be so kind as to give us ears to hear and hearts to be receptive to the word. That you would bless the preaching of the word, Father, because it's prepared with inadequacies. And, Father, I pray you to protect your people from the error that's crept into my thinking about this text I pray that we would be receptive by your spirit to the truth that's proclaimed. Illumine our minds to the inspired word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it doesn't take much to as you read the Bible to understand the Bible is historical to its core. That history is interwoven with God's miraculous intervention on the one hand in things and God's on the other hand, don't confuse those two. There's a difference. They both come from God, but there's a difference. God is at work in the everyday affairs of your life. And He's not doing it miraculously into the affairs of your life. Uh, you have been created with your particular personalities, your particular interests, your particular proclivities. Grass was made with a particular biological structure. The earth has been put in rotation around the sun in a certain way. All of that functions according to how God created it. Even you, yet God is behind it all. That's his providence. That's his providence. He's the primary cause of everything. And everything else he's created is the secondary cause of things. So that difference between God's providence and his miraculous intervention... Again, it's seen in our text this morning. Both things are happening. In verses 1 through 7, we primarily see God's providence at work. The only miraculous thing that's actually there in verses 1 through 7 is the fact that Mary is pregnant, but pregnant because of a supernatural act of God. But her pregnancy is fairly normal, and God's providence is overseeing the gestation period of the baby inside Mary. So we see both the historical record of God's providence and the miraculous intervention in space and time in history in this passage. God's sovereignty expressed through his providence had established the Roman Empire, right? At that stage in history, Rome was the master of Palestine, Caesar Augustus was the emperor, the second emperor at that particular time in Roman history. And Quirinius was governor of Syria. All of those are just details that Luke throws in. Why? Because Luke really wants his readers to understand that behind all of that is the hand of Almighty God. It was the census, you see, this census that God used... In his providence to move Joseph and Mary out of Galilee to Bethlehem. It was to Bethlehem that all the descendants of the house of David had to go to register. Now, Caesar Augustus had no revelation from God. Have a sense, Caesar. No. Um, not at all. Um, it just is something that he considered necessary and politically expedient. So he issued it. He issued the decree. Doing what politicians do, wants to make more money, right? But long before Caesar had even thought of the idea, long before Caesar had even been an idea himself, the Lord God, through the prophet Micah, had promised that the Messiah, the Savior of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, would be born in Bethlehem. Why? Because he was the lineage of David, that was David's town. And David's son would come from David's town. The greatest king in Israel, David. I would argue David isn't better than Solomon. David had a lot more to contend with than his son Solomon ever had to do. And every Jew knew that David's origins were of no small significance. Although he was born in the most insignificant of towns in Judah. And so the true David, the true Messiah, had to be born there too. So we read in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The Lord is sovereign in his providence, no doubt about it, in the coming together of Joseph and Mary. That wasn't a miracle. That was a providential work of God. The miracle was when Mary was told, oh, by the way, uh, you're going to have a child, and it's not going to be by Joseph. That was a miracle, no doubt about that. The Lord is sovereign in both his miraculous work and in his providential work. And it was his providence, we see, over when Mary is going to deliver. There's nothing miraculous about that. That's providential work. He was sovereign in the fact that the lodging place was full. He was sovereign over that. He filled the lodging place, in one sense we could say, and that the couple had to find accommodations in some kind of barn-like structure with probably domestic animals, chickens running all around, I don't know. And that he would be placed in a feeding trough, a manger. It's all God's providence. God is controlling the events. All the details surrounding his birth underscore one big concept. You ready? Humiliation. Humiliation. You realize that the humiliation of the Son of God was not that he was born in a stable or not that he was born by poor folk, but that he was born, period. Very God of very God, who, gave, who created all things, becomes a creature. Very God of very God, who issued the laws, becomes one who now lives under the law. Talk about humiliation. Everything from the incarnation to the cross is Jesus living humbly, not considering his own interests, but considering your interests and my interests. And that's what it's about. So verses 1 through 7 in Luke record historical details. And listen, dear friends, it's gotta be historical. If your faith is simply an ideology, then you might as well chuck it. We get all kinds of ideologies bumping around the world. You realize that? They cause wars and strife and all sorts of thoughts about how to make the economy work and all that. That's a bunch of ideology. This is history. This is history. Now, when it comes to how these shepherds hear of Jesus' birth, we are looking at a record or narrative of the miraculous. No doubt about it. But it's the work of God's providence that these shepherds happened to be where they were in that region at that particular time, at that particular day, in that particular evening. They could have been someplace else. But God used their particular insights as shepherds and concern for their flock to know where to tend them, where to bring them to the best pasture. All that was at work behind this. They, they were freely choosing all of that, freely choosing all of that, and yet God was in control. Can you get your brain around that? It's called concurrence. Theologians make up new words. It's called concurrence. In other words, God is 100% active, and the shepherds were 100% active. They didn't feel like they were being suppressed by God's sovereignty. They chose what they chose, and God was doing what God was doing. God has a wonderful way of blending those things together. Yet it was the miraculous work of God that an angel from heaven suddenly appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is no ordinary or regular or everyday act of God's providence, this was God's supernatural indirect intervention, power at work at this point. God can do both. The glory of the Lord was made visible by this great light that shone around them. They were encompassed, enveloped in light. This was the same glory that had led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt The same glory that led them through the Red Sea. The same glory that came down upon Mount Sinai as the covenant was being ratified and made. The same glory that filled the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple. It was the same glory. The shepherds were being confronted by the supernatural glory of heaven. And this miracle, you see, was bombarding their physical senses. It's historical. It's historical. It's in time and space. And they sense the miracle. They sense the glory of God. They first of all only see the angel. The first, they only, they only see the light. And then they hear the angel speak. They literally hear the angel speak. It's not something they are hallucinating over. They actually hear the angel speak. There's one angel now. The Lord's glory had frightened them. This tells us that it was indeed a sobering experience for these angels, and not all these wonderful carols notwithstanding. They were in fear, they were in dread. This was not normal, this was not common. The text literally reads in the Greek they feared great fear. Can you fear great fear? <laughs> They feared great fear. It's a way of saying that their fear was intense. And it was intense because they were encountering the holy. Capital H, capital O, capital L, capital Y. I would argue this was the right response. When the holy comes, you better be afraid. But the angel brings them assurance that they need not fear. No doubt they were afraid of what they were seeing that was miraculous and what the holy might bring to them that was unwelcomed. When that which is unholy is confronted with the holy, it is proper to consider how threatening the holy indeed is. For what is unholy cannot endure the revelation of what is holy. You need to understand that. Now, for a person to be in a right place with the holy, one needs to at least begin to fear the holy. You'll never be right with the holy if you don't fear the holy. The shepherds saw their unholiness and knew that they had no way to endure the glory of the Lord. And what did they ultimately fear from this miraculous revelation of the holy? What did the angels actually fear? They feared the judgment of God. That's what they were afraid of. Yet God's glory not only presages his judgment, and it does, but also, in this case, his grace. His grace. For the angel had not come with a message of judgment, but with the gospel of grace. There was no need for fear to linger, for the angel comes with good news. Now this tells us that they indeed feared judgment and wrath, Because when the angel tells them not to fear, he's not saying, Oh, don't worry about God anymore. No, no, no. When he's telling him not to fear, he's he's not telling him not to reverence God or not to worship God. No, not to fear his judgment. Isn't that good news? I mean that's the news you need to hear and I need to hear. Um they need not fear. Not to fear God's holy wrath, anyway. For the good news concerns how God has established a propitiation for his wrath. A satisfaction of and removal of his wrath. Now, that's not stated directly in the text. Although in verse 21, it will be somewhat hinted at. But it brings us to the rest of the New Testament, doesn't it? Now, the angel is evangelizing the shepherds. The angel is really the first New Testament evangelist. The word literally means he preached the gospel to them. He preached the good news to them. The angel proclaims to them the gospel. I bring you good news. I am here to announce to you the gospel, the good news. This good news is good news that brings great joy and it is for all the people. It is good news for the Jewish people and indeed for all the various peoples of the world. This is a very particular kind of good news. It's good news for all the world and its good news rooted in the historical arrival, the advent of David's greater son, for his son is born for you. You notice that in one sense, he's not born for Mary or not born for Joseph, he, he, he's born for you. He comes as God's gift to sinners who would but open their hearts and minds to the gift And by faith received the gift, the good news. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the gospel is not simply some ideal, as I mentioned. Even an ideal offered by the true and living God. The gospel or good news of salvation has to be rooted in actual history. And that's the record of the gospel writers. They're not making it up. They're just reporting it. Apart from this baby who the shepherds were told they would find that night in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, apart from this baby, there would be no good news. There would be no good news. Salvation is packaged in this person. In this particular person. In the one who at this point in history was a newborn, who nonetheless at his birth was Savior. Christ the Lord, at his birth. I tell you, this gets my socks rising. He, in embryo form, is still providentially controlling the universe. He, as a baby, nursing in his mother's breasts, is providentially controlling even the people who will one day crucify him. Lord, at his birth. Now, the infinite significance of this good news is now underscored in the account of the miraculous appearance of thousands upon thousands of soldiers from heaven's angelic army. These are not just nice little cherubs with fat cheeks and, you know, little bows and arrows. These are seraphs. You would not want to meet heaven's armies. There's not not a single army on, with all the armies on this earth put together, they could do nothing in the presence of heaven's armies. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and his armies appear. It is the gospel alone, note this, it's the gospel alone (laughs) that simultaneously brings glory to God in the highest and grace to sinners. Imagine that. Nothing else honors God and saves sinners but the gospel. Everything else is in conflict with those two ideas. But the gospel alone does both. Our God is so wise and so capable and so good. God will glorify Himself. And God at the same time will be gracious to the undeserving. That's the gospel. God is to be glorified for this is the ultimate expression of his saving grace, the offering up of his son first in the incarnation and finally at the crucifixion. Yet it's for the benefit of sinful men and women like you and me who are estranged from our creator who have no basis for drawing near to him. Yet in the gospel, God brings to earth this peace, this peace with him For those with whom he is pleased. Now, think with me for a minute. How has your week been? With whom is God pleased? Last time I checked, we're all sinners. With whom? With whom is God pleased? I can bring nothing to God to please him with whom? With whom is God pleased? Well the text tells us doesn't it? The text intimates anyway he is pleased with those who see their need he is pleased with those who tremble at his holiness he is pleased with those who open their hearts to the gift of his grace and welcome his son as the shepherds are about to do You think God Almighty was pleased with those shepherds that night because they responded the way they did to the message? Yes. What else do you have to please him with? He is pleased with those who humble themselves. He is pleased with the contrite and broken in heart. He will not despise such people. He is pleased with those who see this gift as the greatest of all gifts and praise him for it and make much of it. And God is pleased with those who delight in what God gives them. And we see that the shepherds respond. We see the shepherds' faith in their response. They don't sit around contemplating the miracle of the angelic appearances, but they heed the message of the angel. They didn't sit around and say, oh, man, wasn't that cool? Wasn't that wonderful? Man, I can't, I can't tell my grandkids this. No, they do what the messenger told them to do. They focus on the one who is at the center of the good news, the child born to them that night. They do not focus on the angels. No matter how significant it was, they don't sit around and focus on the angels. They believe that this has been made known to them by the Lord, so off they hurry to Bethlehem to find the child who is the Savior, the Lord Christ. And they found Mary, they found Joseph, and they found that baby where they were told they would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they're not quiet. I like these dudes. They're not quiet. They share with Mary and they share with Joseph what happened to them. And the text said they share with others. We don't know who the others were. But there are others there. They share what the angel had made known to them concerning this child. No doubt they told them about the miraculous appearance of the angel, how they were filled with great fear, yet how the angel assured them they had nothing to fear, for he was bringing them good news of great joy. And this good news was for all the people. It was good news that pertained to this little one lying before their very eyes in a cattle trough wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's all about him. It's all about him. And they can't keep their traps shut. I like these dudes. I really do. You know the guys I want to meet in glory? Are these angels? I mean, are these shepherds? Everyday work guys. Run-of-the-mill guys. Guys who have to tend with stubborn sheep. These guys, they believed. They believed. So these shepherds are now the evangelists. They're the gospelers. All who heard the gospel of the shepherds wondered and marveled at what they were told. For they were hearing this for the first time. So the populace, maybe the people that were around Bethlehem at that time, and as the, as the shepherds go back to tending their flocks, they're still gabbing the gospel. They're gabbing the gospel. And so those who heard it for the first time were marveling, yet Mary. You know who knew the most about Jesus at that moment? His mom. Mary, Mary, who knew the most about this child, saw the value of the gospel that the shepherds were sharing, and she treasured up all these things in her heart. She valued what was said. She knew the inherent riches of what the shepherds said, and she kept pondering these words in her heart. The text indicates that she keeps reflecting upon them. She keeps meditating upon them. She keeps ruminating over them again and again and again. Wow. Well, the text tells us, almost like an aside, the shepherds return to their flocks. Well, you know, the gospel... Dear friends, is to be taken back into the normal routines of our everyday lives. Really. There's no sense in kind of just getting all gaga-eyed about it. Just go back to your families. Go back to your jobs. Go back to your schools. Go back to your neighborhoods. The shepherds return. They return to their flock, to their job. But they return different men. They returned with great joy and with great praise. And what they had heard and seen was just what they had been told. They found that the gospel was indeed true, and it changed them. They remained shepherds. They remained shepherds, but it but changed people who were filled with hearts of worship and praise. This is what the world needs to see from you, O s- saint, and from me. Does the gospel still float your boat? I mean, really. This is what the gospel does when it's believed. It enables us to return to the common, ordinary events of our lives under the providence of God, but with knowledge that we now know God. We have received the good news and there's joy in our hearts, along with a life that now is truly vertical. Poop! Do you walk around like that? Because of the gospel, you know you have a relationship with the creator of all the cosmos. Does that, is that in your life, you see? This is what was happening to the shepherds. So what we need to stress is that this newborn was not going to remain a newborn, however. This is where verse 21 comes into play. He came into the world to grow into manhood. He came into the world to grow into manhood. That's why it would not be enough for him to die in infancy. If Herod had killed him, he would not have atoned for the sins of the world. He hadn't lived long enough yet. So Matthew records a very important event in his life. In one sense, a very ordinary event. Every little Jewish boy would go through this. Matthew records that eight days later, after his birth, he was circumcised and he was named, which Jewish law required. He was prophesied over, though, by Simeon and Anna. That's interesting. That doesn't happen to every Jewish boy so we see the miraculous in a sense, not in a direct way here, but the providential work of God and, 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 and the sense of these, these two prophets, Samuel, I mean, Simeon and Anna. We didn't read that text, but that's what happens at the temple. Now, Mary was told before Joseph that her son's name was to be Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So his name, you see his name. As you saw him in the his name stood not only for his mission, but for his person. When those shepherds were looking at him, they were looking at Yeshua. They were looking at God incarnate, the Lord God incarnate. He who's named after who he truly was. If he, if he were not who he was, he could never fulfill the mission assigned him to be the savior of sinners. We read that in the catechism, didn't we? He had to be both God and man. Now, here we get a hint of just how he would save us in verse 21. It is seen in his circumcision. What does that have to do with the cross? Well, every Jewish male at eight days was given the sign of the covenant in his flesh. Now, bear with me. This meant that he was taking upon himself, every Jewish male, the demands of the covenant of Moses. Are you with me? Or more specifically, the demands of the law were now being placed on that little child who was circumcised and named. That little child, that little boy, was now obligated to keep the law fully, completely, fully and completely. Yet, No Jewish male was ever able to do that. So within the very covenant of Moses, it would be necessary for every single circumcised Jewish male to lean on another provision of Mosaic covenant and that was the system of priestly sacrifices. You made your best effort, but you better do so with a sacrifice in your hand. You make your best effort, but you better do so with a sacrifice in your hand. That was the Jewish life. Here comes one, though. Just like every other Jewish male to that point, who is circumcised and named. But he's circumcised and named like in his baptism because he comes to identify himself with sinners, with lawbreakers. He who gave the law now assumes the demands of the law. He, unlike anyone else, will in fact keep those demands perfectly, but not for himself, but for his people, for all those who would come to trust in him. For this is what you need to trust in Jesus for. Why do you need to trust in Jesus? What is it about Jesus that you need to trust in? If you are truly a Christian, you better this morning be trusting in Jesus' law-keeping. Are you? Are you trusting in his obedience to the law? You better be. Are you trusting also in the fact that this Jesus who kept the law perfectly also endured the curse of the law fully? You need to be trusting in both things because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So the gospel is good news precisely because Jesus came to fulfill the law in our stead, in our place, obeying its commands and enduring its penalties. He is the great law keeper. But he's the great wrath bearer. He's the great law keeper. But he's the great wrath bearer. If that doesn't move you, if that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't draw faith out of your heart, you are dead as stone. This is the gift given to us by God's grace. This is the gift that comes wrapped in the light of God's glory. This is the good news that compels all who open their hearts to it to indeed be filled with great joy and glorious praise. This is what's got to fuel our worship service, brothers and sisters, every Sunday. It's got to be the gospel. It's got to be the gospel. So faith in the good news, faith in the gospel is what our response to it must be if we're to benefit from it. And we see, again, faith, I think, operating primarily in the shepherds and in Mary. It may have been operating in the others who marveled and were astonished, but not necessarily. People can be moved by things but never believe what they're moved by. But we definitely see it in the shepherds. We see the shepherds' faith demonstrated in their obedience to the message. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. It's not works righteousness. It's I believe the gospel, I respond. I, I, I do what the gospel beckons me to do, believe in Christ. The gospel is God's gospel, and as such, it comes to us from the one who is indeed holy. And, and so, those who truly come to faith in the gospel, like these shepherds, will know a certain degree of holy fear over the realities of their unholiness. The gospel makes no sense in any other context but the exposure of one's unholiness due to one's sins makes no sense in any other context. For the good news to be heard is good news. One must come under some degree of conviction of sin and sinfulness, of the awareness of falling short of God's glory, of being just a just recipient of God's wrath. I'm sorry. When it comes to desserts, you don't deserve anything, and I don't deserve anything but God's wrath. That's what I've earned. And I need to tremble over that reality. We don't have that kind of fear in our culture. Oh my goodness, we don't have that kind of fear in our churches. Really? Jesus makes no sense. The idea of the good news makes no sense to you unless you understand that you before a holy God like these shepherds are unholy and need God's wrath. Or will receive God's wrath. And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what's the gospel all about, my friends? I can put it in this simple way. It's God saving us from himself. Yes, it's God saving us from sin. And yes, it's God saving us from hell. And yes, it's God saving us from all the terrible consequences of our sin. But when push comes to shove... It's God saving us from God. And so without this operating in your heart and mind, the gospel makes no sense. It came to these shepherds as good news, great news, because in the face of their unholiness, they were assured. Now that's why it was set up that way. See, the angel just doesn't walk in, kind of concealed, as like a salesman, say, hey guys, I've got some good things for you. No, he appears with all the splendor and glory of God because these shepherds need to see their unholiness. They had to see that. And when they saw that, and they trembled in fear, with great fear, the angel saw that too, and he says, I bring you great news. So it came to these shepherds as good news, great news, because in the face of their unholiness, they were assured that they need not fear God's glory, for here was God's remedy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, A Savior is Christ the Lord. And think of that. The glory of God comes and and the shepherds tremble, which they should, and immediately the the angel proclaims the gospel to them and they embrace it. Upon hearing this, they respond in faith by going to the one the angel told them they would find. Uh, the gospel always points people to that same Jesus. Have you found him? He is no longer a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. He is the one who lived an obedient life and died a penal death and was risen. has risen. He is alive forevermore and he will save you if you seek him and put your faith in him. In his obedient life and in his death for your sins. But, but you must go to him. As the shepherds did. Don't go to a priest. Don't go to the church. Don't go to your grandmother. Don't go to some willy-nilly kind of. You got to go to Christ as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures. That's it. So the shepherds respond in faith. You see that there. I think that was initial faith for them too. I think that was their, their first kind of faith. Saving faith. There are new believers. But for you who have trusted in him, what should your continued response be to that gospel? That sweet, precious, priceless gospel. I think it should be the response of Mary, shouldn't it? Where is good news ultimately found in your life, my friends? Where is it found? You, f- you try to find happiness and, and meaning in your marriage, you try to find it in your kids, your bank account, your job, your identity in terms of your vocation, where do, you, where do you try to find it? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you moving through difficult stages and phases in your life? Where is the good news for you? What do you look to to find good news? It's got to be found in this, or it's not found anywhere. Now, the devil dresses up all kinds of things. This Christmas, you're gonna be all kinds of things under your tree. I like doing that too. But we, we know we know the classic syndrome, right? Come Christmas afternoon, there's a kind of depression in the air. <laughs> all that opulence. It's <laughs> lying in unwrapped paper on all your. And all that stuff, all those plans and energy—you you started shopping for Christmas back in September, right? And all the energy you spent, all that stuff—I know what that. I just using the end. It's like a window. Where is the good news? So, dear Saint, dear Saint, you need to take a lesson from Mary. So, have you treasured the gospel in your heart? Have you treasured it in your heart? I mean, treasured it. Do you see its value above all other situations and all other things you might possibly value? I know there are lesser treasures. My wife's a treasure, but she cannot be my greatest treasure. You can have kind of lesser treasures, but you can have only one ultimate treasure. It's not all the hobbies. It's not all the things that you kind of look to when, when, when you're stressed out by life. You know, when I'm stretched out by life, I like to nap, right? And that could be a treasure. I could get away from it all, whatever that might be. But if you value the gospel, boy, if you value the gospel and give you joy and produce within you your heart great praise, as it did Mary. So there's that treasuring, that there's that that sense of putting value on what is inherently valuable. Yet there's more for you who have believed the gospel. I'm talking about mature Christians. I'm talking about maturing Christians, I should say. What's more? You should ponder it. You should ponder it. You're to let it fill your mind. What do you keep going back to throughout the day? Throughout each day. Now, this is an exercise of faith to some degree, an exercise of obedience. But let me tell you this. I really mean it. We need to spend more time thinking and pondering the gospel, the good news of Christ. We need to know how to preach it to ourselves. We, know how to, we need to know how to access it daily and ponder it. Do you? And I said it's an exercise of faith and obedience. Yet, let me tell you this, and I'm almost done. If it is your treasure... If it is your greatest treasure, you will have no problem pondering it. You'll have no problem thinking about it. Why? How is that possible? Well, there's a principle here. You and I are wired. We are wired to think most about what we treasure most. You can't change that. That is who you are. You think the most about what you treasure the most. You think the most about what's the most important to you. That's a fact. That's a fact. So do you feel like I feel right now? I need God's grace to make sure I have my treasure ordered properly. Seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you as well. I think Mary, with all her imperfections and her need for grace, knew that. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that You would take the word that's been preached, even by the preacher himself, and really work it into our DNA, our spiritual DNA. Father, I pray for those here who've never trusted in Christ, they'd see their need, why they, you would show them the ledger book before your holiness, they would see how far short they fall, they would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and see their reason, the need to tremble before your holiness. And then hear the good news that if they but trust in this Christ, they would be forgiven, accepted. And for us who have trusted, Father, give us the grace to treasure the gospel. To esteem it, O oh Father, to, to put value on it because it is inherently valuable. And then to ponder it. Oh, to meditate on it, to ruminate on it. Hearing his love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Those coming, serving the table, come forward. Music as well, please.